Hey, everybody. Welcome to Let's Fix Work. I'm Lori Rudiman. Today's show is an interview with Alexandra Levitt, a workplace author, business coach, and futurist. Fancy, right? Alex is an old friend of mine, but she's got a new book out called Humanity Works. And on today's show, she's going to give us a little hope for the future of work. Want to fix the workplace of tomorrow? Sure you do. That's why you're listening. Sit tight and I'll be right back with more Alexander Levitt and Let's Fix Work. Work is broken. So is the way you think about it. Host Lori Rudiman is picking up the pieces so you can take control of your career, put yourself first, and be your own HR. With the Let's Fix Work podcast, here's Lori. Hey friends, Lori Rudiman here. It's Let's Fix Work and it's a special Let's Fix Work today because I have a longtime friend, a dear friend, an amazing woman, Alexandra Lovett. Alex, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, Lori. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited. Hi, everyone. Oh my gosh. Well, Alex, we've known one another for a decade and I've known you in a few different iterations of your career. So maybe get everybody up to speed. Who is Alexandra Levitt and what are you doing today? All right. Well, Alexandra Levitt started in this space of the business world and human resources way back in 2004. I wrote a book called They Don't Teach Corporate in College and was originally out on the circuit teaching young professionals how to succeed in corporate America. And that was when I got my initial taste of human resources and learned that it was going to be a much more strategic function in the 21st century versus the transactional function as it has been before. And I was fascinated by this. And gradually, I started working with uh, Fortune 500 companies and doing some consulting for the Obama administration. And in doing that, started to make predictions, or I was asked to make predictions about the future of work and where I saw things going and how leaders and their employees need to be prepared. And that was when I got into, I guess, what's a relatively new gig as a futurist. So I'm still focusing on the workplace, but I am targeting what we need to do to be successful five to 10 to 15 years out. And so to that end, I have a new book that's called Humanity Works, Merging Technologies and People for the Workforce of the Future. And the goal is to have everyone be excited about it instead of being alarmed because there's actually more opportunities for humans to do meaningful work than we've ever had before. So I think it's something that's far from being doomsday. It's something that's full of opportunity and that we should all be looking forward to. Well, I love that. You know, you and I are friends because we have a nice balance to our relationship. I think we're both realists, but I'm more cynical. You're a little bit more optimistic. And I definitely believe that work today needs to be fixed so that we fix the workforce for tomorrow. So I wonder what your take is on that. And then if we do need to fix some things today, how do we set ourselves up for success in the future? Well, Lori, I love this podcast because I do think that work needs to be fixed. And the biggest thing that I think needs to be fixed is the fact that we have no boundaries between personal and professional life that, especially here in the U.S., there's just a constant barrage of work responsibilities that have completely swallowed any semblance of personal identity that we have. And this is because technology has allowed us to be on 24-7. And it's the American culture that if we can be on, we should be on. And so we see other countries taking kind of extreme action toward this. France is a great example. They passed a law, if you can believe that, that says that 
bosses are not allowed to send their employees email outside of business hours. And some other organizations in Germany have actually put filters on their email system so that email cannot be sent. They have to wait to be sent until an appropriate hour. Now, that will never, as you and I can imagine, probably many of the listeners too, that will never happen here in the U.S. Never. No, never. And in fact, the opposite is true, right, Alex? Right. I just want to get your opinion on this. There's a push yeah. now to tell workers that work-life blend is okay, and it's always okay to be on, and you should blend your personal and your professional lives together. And if you want to take a call at eight o'clock at night, well, that's just great. That's fantastic. Look at the freedom that you have. I wonder if you hear that message as well and what you think about that. I hear that message as well. And to some degree, I don't have a problem with it. I think the issue, though, is that what we need to be saying to people is you should still work an appropriate amount of hours. So maybe if you're taking off for your kid's baseball game from three to five, and then you're taking a call at eight, that's one form of flexibility. And that, I think, is perfectly acceptable. But the danger of this message is, no, you're actually already working from 8 to 6, and then you have dinner with your family from 6 to 8, and you work again from 8 to 2 a.m. Yeah, I think that's right. That's too much work. That's a recipe for burnout. And you end up not doing anything except for working and then doing the bare minimum to care for your family or any other priorities that you might have. And I think that people don't know how to manage this. And we're not helping them with the psychological principles or with the actual practical techniques that you can use to have better balance. You can't just integrate. You have to balance. And I think that that's not something that comes naturally to many people. And it's not something that organizations really feel like pushing because, hey, they'd rather get as much work out of people as possible. At least here in the U.S., that's our mentality. So the successful model of work in the future is predicated on some balance, right? So I hear you say that. Any other things that you think will set us up for success for the future of work? Well, I think to emphasize what's really important is going to be critical. I think what I hear a ton of, and I'm sure you have too, Lori, is people hand-wringing over automation taking jobs. And what we really need to be thinking about is, yes, there are going to be aspects of every job that will be automated, but there are very few total professions where the whole thing will go away due to automation. And so we need to be reading the writing on the wall that says, okay, well, this aspect of my job is going to be automated, so I need to shift over my attention to doing these things well that aren't so easily automated. And a great example that I've been using lately involves the legal profession. When you think about what lawyers do, well, historically, it's been a whole bunch of legal research to determine where there's a precedent for a particular case. That takes a lot of time. And then, of course, you have to do things like jury selection or stand up in front of a judge or you have to take depositions from people or you have to have a difficult conversation with a client. And if you think about the first part, the legal research, that's something that can be and actually has automatically been taken over already by robots. Machines can do that part of the job. That part of the job is going away. But it's going to be very difficult for a robot to do those other jobs that require really sophisticated interpersonal skills, that require intuition, judgment, empathy, being able to read a room, being able to read a person. And that's where we need to be focusing our energy. So instead of working more, we need to be focusing on what we're actually working on and to scale up and scale across into those areas of human intelligence that are going to be difficult to replace by machines. You know, that's a really interesting example, that legal example. And it makes me think about how you yourself have created an 
I think an interesting and compelling career. You were a career advisor. You've been an author. You've done some consulting and advising at very high levels. You've been involved with career-oriented corporate strategies throughout your career, and you've evolved. You've flexed. And now you're in this role of futurist. And so I wonder, what problems are you trying to solve that you haven't solved for in the past? And how do you know you're successful at doing that? I mean, this job as a futurist is something that's relatively new, right? So how do you know that you're doing good work? It's a great question. And I don't. I think the concept of flexing is something that I do do in my own career. And I try to serve as an example for what I'm essentially telling everybody else to do, which is that there's no such thing anymore as resting on your laurels and getting a degree and being in the same field for 30 years and you don't need to learn anything else. I try to read the market and see what are customers asking for that I can become an expert in and deliver. And that's actually where I get a lot of my skill development from is a customer will ask me, you know, can you facilitate an executive meeting, for example? And I'll be like, well, I've never done that before, but I guess I could learn how to do it. So I go learn how to do it. And that's how I acquire skills. I ask myself what the market needs. Now, the futurist role is a little bit tricky because is something that I took on because I'm typically about five to 10 years ahead of the market in the predictions that I'm making and the suggestions that I'm making for organizations to implement. And one of the reasons I'm actually putting out this new book in the UK is that I've observed that the organizations, at least the larger ones in Asia and Europe, are a bit further ahead with some of these concepts. And when I talk about concepts, at the most basic level, it's like integrating and systematizing a contract workforce or implementing a widespread flex policy. Those sound like basic things, but shockingly, a lot of American companies still haven't done it. And so if you're not doing that, how are you going to integrate and systematize human-machine hybrid teams? If you can't even flex with your human people, how are you going to integrate oh, machines? Yeah, no kidding. So I think that, I don't know if that really answers your question, yeah, but absolutely. I I like the role of thought leader and I like to tell people what they need to be thinking about. And in terms of the uptake, I'm not sure how quick it's going to be for American organizations, but at the very least, I hope to be getting out the message that this new world of work is not something people should be frightened by. It's actually incredibly exciting and it's the best time to be a professional in American history, in my opinion. Wow, that's a huge statement. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, just like the Industrial Revolution, everyone thought that all these people are going to get out of jobs and you know everyone was going to starve. And actually, new job categories were created for every piece of technology that was added to a factory. There had to be four humans there to oversee it. So it's the same type of situation here in the sense that I have a great example of an organization. I'm not going to mention the name, but they're working on a chatbot that's going to be an onboarding chatbot. So it's going to help people find the information that they need when they come on board as new hires. And it's taking, I think, a team of 20 humans to create this thing, to figure out, all right, well, how do we design it? How do we oversee it once it's out there? How do we redeploy it if it's not working properly? If it breaks, what do we do? So there's this whole team that was working on other stuff now that's now working on this chatbot. So wherever there's technology, we still need humans to work with it. I see it. Well, you know, Alex, as I think about the future of work and as you describe it, one of the things that I think worries me is the fact that we have work and the advancement and the evolution of work going like 100 miles an hour. And we have a social and political conversation going about two miles an hour. 
<laughs> so yeah. the way we structure our government, our benefits, especially here in America, it's not keeping up with the change of pace in the world of corporate America. So do you see that tension and do you have any ideas around it or opinions around it? What's going to happen when we move to this project-based workforce, but our benefits are still corporate-driven under an old FTE way of doing business? I see this tension all the time, Lori, and it's in every organization that I walk into and do a talk or consult. It's like, well, we realize we need to do this, but our systems won't allow it. We're not set up that way. And so I think what we're going to see, it's just going to be a very painful, gradual change for most organizations where, okay, it's on a manager case-by-case basis, we can implement some of this stuff. We can adhere to the tax laws with contract workers and we can gradually start bringing them in. And then when it reaches critical mass, then we're going to have to do something about it. It's kind of like what happened with the millennials. When they came in for a while, it was like, well, we're just going to kind of painfully integrate the millennials. And then when the millennials became a majority of the workforce, then we realized, wow, we actually have to change things. And unfortunately, it was about 10 years later than it really should have been. And I think some of these benefit structures and just the overall corporate structure that's set up for FTEs and not for this kind of fluid, diverse workforce that we're going to have, it's going to be the same thing. I think it's what we should be doing is systematizing it now. What we're going to be doing, if I'm being realistic, which as you know, I always am, is probably 10 years down the road. Oh, it's painful. Painful. As we close out the segment, I want to know a couple of things that we're going to learn about in your book. So tell us a little bit about the book itself and what we can look forward to as we uh, pick up a copy at Amazon or Barnes & Noble or even an old school local bookstore. Well, thanks, Gloria. Thank you so much for the support. So Humanity Works is primarily for the leader. It was written because I would be in organizations and I would be asked, okay, well, you have all these trends like the rise of the contract workforce the integration of technology and the rise of human-machine hybrid teams. You're emphasizing human skills. And I had done this TED Talk, and everyone was, like, really excited. But then the natural question that comes at the end of all that is, okay, but what do we do? Like, that's all great that these things are changing, but I, as a leader, have no idea what I'm supposed to do. Like, if I want to develop empathy in my employee base, because that's something that we're going to need, or if I want to develop what are called applied technology skills, which is the ability to work with technology and decide when technology is appropriate to solve different problems and to implement it. How do I grow that skill set? How do I actually do that? It's fine to say that we need to. And so that's why I wrote the book. So the book is a very tangible, all right, here are the trends. And here's literally what you as a leader need to do step-by-step to start preparing. And that's where we're at with this. It's about starting It's not about solving all these problems overnight, but it's about, okay, these are going to be things that are going to be absolutely critical by the year 2030. If you want to do something tomorrow, here's what you do. And it's five things. And we have all sorts of different areas where we focus. We focus on everything from if you want to expand globally or you want to source talent globally because you know that there are qualified sources of talent elsewhere, not just in your neighborhood. How do you do that to if you want to? employ your first chatbot. How do you do that? So it's assuming that most people are at the very beginning of their journey with a lot of these concepts. And so here are the steps to actually gain some momentum and feel good about yourself and make a business case for it. Because if you don't have a business case behind a lot of this stuff, your senior, most leaders are going to be like, this all sounds cool, but you know, business as usual, we don't have time or money. So it's about step-by-step, one small pilot at a time. 
Excellent. Well, listen, Alex, in the second part of our show, we're going to talk about who's getting work right in 2018 and what you like and what you see. And we'll also talk Mm -hmm. about what surprises you about the future of work. So sit tight, Alex, and everybody else. We'll be right back in a minute with more Let's Fix Work. Hey, everybody. Did you know that employees are stressed because of financial issues? Of course you do. You might even be stressed. Well, Let's Fix Work is proud to sponsor the Financial Wellness Telesummit for Human Resources Professionals. It's on October 16th through 18th, 2018 at 11 a.m. each day. You can head over to pocketofmoney.com forward slash Summit to learn more. At the summit, HR professionals will learn about financial wellness programs and activities that alleviate the negative effects of financial stress on employees and businesses. Each day of the summit, attendees will watch a presentation on a topic related to employee financial wellness. And guess what? You can do it from the comfort of your own desk. So head on over to pocketofmoney.com forward slash FW summit and sign up today. That's pocketofmoney.com forward slash FW summit for more information on the financial wellness telesummit for HR professionals. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Let's Fix Work. I'm Lori Rudiman, and I'm here today with my awesome friend, Alexandra Levitt. Alex, how you doing? Do you enjoy the first half? I love the first half, Lori. You're so good at this. Thanks, everybody, for coming back and listening, and I can't wait to hear your feedback. Oh, you know what? You're my friend. So you get 20 bucks later. That's how that works. All right. Well, listen, I want to take a turn because I can be a little negative about the future of work and even the present day process of work. And so I want to know, Alex, who's getting work right? And what do you like out there? What do you see that makes you feel hopeful that the future might not be so dark? What I like is organizations, first of all, that haven't taken an extreme approach to automation. The logical thing to do, I think, for a lot of C-suiters who are not really educated on the pros and cons of automation would be to just say, oh, well, I see the business case for automating this entire segment of my employee population and just doing mass layoffs. And then realizing later, oh, that actually didn't work as well as I thought. I need some humans here to oversee this process. But I actually don't see that happening as much as I would have thought. I would have thought that the alarm would have just caused people to pull the trigger a lot more quickly. And what instead I see is gradual implementations of automation where humans are really being encouraged, even at the lowest levels, to experiment, to practice what I call intrapreneurship, which is, I didn't make up, but that's a term that means entrepreneurial strategies and across a wide variety of roles and skills. And it flows off the tongue so easily, entrepreneurship. (laughs) I know, it sounds so good, doesn't it? But yeah, the companies are kind of they're kind of buying into it. And I don't see as much pushback on it as I did in the past. I mean, still innovation is a tough pill to swallow. Everyone likes to talk about it, but it's more difficult to prioritize that over everyday business priorities. But I see it happening more than I would have expected. So that's happening. Flexibility has been slow to take off, but I do see it happening. And I do see companies certain ones that are trying to teach employees about good mental health and about good balance and about, you know, if you have a problem, we're here as a partner to help you. That is something where I think it's going to become more and more important as we're moving to different work structures, just like 
there are some people like you and me, Lori, who aren't necessarily cut out to work in the traditional corporate world. There are just as many people or more that aren't cut out to work for themselves. And the company is taking responsibility for saying, look, we're going to teach people to be more independent, to set goals from the bottom, to make a real difference in the organization. I think that's really refreshing. And it's been really nice to see. So companies, some of them are starting to kind of get it, which, you know, when I was coming up in my career in my 20s, no company got anything. It seemed like they were just clueless. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's what it felt like. I think your point earlier about millennials pushing some conversations in the workplace is really astute. And for everybody out there who hates talking about millennials or hates the trend of millennials, I think one thing that's been really great in the past 10 years since really the Great Recession is this push towards to your point, Alex, flexibility, authenticity, but also some transparency around, you know, this is what we want and we're not going to take it anymore. You got to give us, you know, more humane working conditions, time off to be with our families. And if you hate Obamacare, then you have to offer us something better than Obamacare, right? So I think there have been some good things in the workforce in the past 10 years. And I can't believe I'm saying that and thanking millennials. No, but you're right, though. And it's because the millennials, what made them different, everyone always says, oh, there's nothing different about them. Everybody was this way when they were in their 20s. And I guess to some degree, I do believe that. But I think that the core difference with millennials was that they just were willing to speak up at a younger age. They want what everyone else wanted. But it's just everyone else is like, well, I'm not going to say anything until I'm in power. And the millennials were like, screw that. I'm going to say it today. And they just had such critical mass. There's strength in numbers too. So when I was, yes. you know, in human resources, there mm-hmm. was nobody my age working in HR. So when I said something, right. I just looked like a dumb young woman who had a chip on her mm-hmm. shoulder. And while that may have been true, all of it, I yeah. also may have also been a little correct about, you know, like flexibility and technology, but I didn't have a cohort that had my back. And I think millennials That's just right. benefit because there were so many of them that they could make the case like, hey, we want change. And look at how many of us are here say no to us and nobody's going to work for you. That's right. They were the biggest generation in world history. They are the majority of the workforce now and that they are driving any of these decisions. And as they become leaders, they're leading differently. So they're starting to say, well, I'm not going to do this hierarchy thing. Everyone on my team is equal. Everyone has a different skill set and we're going to be more collaborative. And that's such a huge change. And that's led to the rise of, well, probably not a total holacracy in most organizations, an organization that's much flatter, that's being driven by individuals as opposed to a group of executives in a boardroom. And it is nice to see. So I think your point is exactly right, that this employee population that is driving some of these changes and insisting on them because otherwise you can't get talent. My favorite example of this is, and again, I'm not going to mention the organization name, but I worked with an organization that was located in kind of the worst area of the country. Like no young person was ever going to want to move there. We can make some guesses where that is. (laughs) (laughs) I'm happy to start guessing, but no, 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 I won't. That's mean. All right. But, but yeah, they only wanted people who were local for the longest time. They're like, we're just going to insist. This is a good company. People should want to move here. They should deal with it. And then finally, they were like, you know what? We're going to have to start embracing remote work and virtual teams because otherwise we can't get the best people. And eventually they relented. They had to. And so that's the reality. But it's nice to see companies, instead of burying their heads in the sand and just being stubborn about it, saying, okay, well, you know what? We really are going to need to make some changes. And and seeing it actually happen in real time is kind of cool. 
Well, that is kind of cool, actually. Well, I also wonder what the future, you know, you've talked about what the future of looks of work looks like in terms of, you know, this mix of technology and human hybrid and flexible mm-hmm. teams and collaboration. But I wonder what the future of work is like for working men and women or people of the LGBT community or people of color, because a lot of times automation and just advancement steamrolls over the least among us in society. Right. So are you optimistic for these individual groups or do we have some work to do? This is a great question too. I am optimistic. I'm cautiously optimistic. So there's a couple of things happening in the diversity and inclusion space. So the big trend now is towards something called cognitive diversity and inclusion, which essentially just means that you can show up and have your unique perspective and show your background and that you're listened to and respected and that your point of view is taken into account, regardless of where you came from, what you look like, what your experience level is, et cetera. The problem is until we get everybody in the room, it's impossible to listen to them. So if we don't get traditional diversity and inclusion right, it's very hard to get cognitive diversity and inclusion right because people have to be there to start. So that's one thing. So I think sometimes we're trying to get a little bit ahead of ourselves with a lot of organizations that haven't quite mastered how to source and recruit a truly diverse population of people. So that's one thing. The other thing is I think I am optimistic with respect to especially recruiting technologies that are helping us remove the bias from employment decisions. Where I get a little bit squirrely is that human beings build these algorithms. So (laughs) if a human is biased, the algorithm is going to be biased. And so I think there's a lot of technology out there that has a lot of promise, but I think we can't look at it as a panacea. It's like, well, if I use this algorithm, then I never have to worry about bias in the employment process again, because this will make it foolproof. And that's not true. We still have a lot of work to do in that space. And this is not an area we've mastered by any stretch. It is not an area with an easy fix, including technology. And so there are developments that we can be proud of, particularly in the area of recruitment software. But this is something that we just have to keep working on. And I think that the biggest thing that I talk about in the book is unconscious bias. Because being aware that we all make these natural attributions based on past experiences we might have had, based on our culture growing up, and to know that those things are natural and that they're going to pop into our heads, but we don't necessarily need to listen to it, is probably the biggest weapon against decisions that are made from bias. We know bias exists. Everybody needs to take it into account and just being reminded of it and knowing that you just have to take a step back, reassess, be as objective as you can in terms of your measurements and in terms of making sure you're comparing apples to apples and that you're not allowing that to get in the way, I think is probably most important. Really interesting. You know, when you talked about cognitive diversity, it's one of those weird topics that I'm just going to state my opinion on it, Alex. It sounds like something like an older white man made up. Okay, (laughs) because there is no way that a person of color or a woman or anybody who's part of a marginalized community be like, oh yeah, cognitive diversity. That sounds real good. It's one of those phrases that drives me crazy whenever I hear the discussion. Thank you for addressing it so earnestly and head on because you're right. You can't have cognitive diversity until, what did you say? You have the right people in the room, correct? Yeah, you have traditional, traditional diversity, like actually having, and what you say is interesting because I have heard people Specifically, when I worked on a study with Deloitte, one of the around this notion of cognitive diversity and inclusion, I heard from some people of color who were like, that's great. <laughs> you know, I'm an African American in a largely Caucasian company. So, like, 
what do I do? (laughs) I still have the same problems that I had before. And it's great that people who are entry level are now getting their opinions taken care of. But like, I'm like a senior leader and I still, you know, so that's the thing. I think we just have to be very careful that we don't try to get ahead of ourselves. Mm -hmm. We still, most organizations have an actual problem with diversity and inclusion. Yes, they do. Yes. Well, listen, if there's one message you can leave with our listeners about the book, about the future of work, about your role as a futurist, what is it? My main message is, Lori, is that it is an exciting time to be a professional, but everyone has to take ownership for their own development. And leaders have to take ownership of the development of their workforces to start putting small programs into place little by little that will help us be competitive and marketable in a workforce that's continually evolving. And that means that we're going to have to be agile and we're going to have to be willing to change And we're going to have to be willing to look at new strategies all the time and not be stuck in what worked for us in the past, because that's a surefire path to disaster. So there's opportunity, but you can make sure we take advantage of it and don't bury our heads in the sand. Fabulous. Alex, listen, I want everybody to go out there and buy your book and learn all about you. So where can we find you and what's important for us to see on the web? Well, Humanity Works book dot com is a great site to learn basically about the book and also to get a lot of pre-order bonuses. If you order any quantity of books before the book is available here in the U.S. on the 28th of October, you can actually get quite a lot of free stuff. You can get free speaking engagements, free consulting. So keep that in mind because you know if you hire me for a speaking engagement, it's going to be more money than if you buy this amount of books. It's significant savings to try and get the word out there about this book and what we're looking to do. So if you look at it and you have any questions, feel free to give me a ring, but it's humanityworksbook.com. Awesome. We will make sure that's included in the show notes. Alex, it's so great to catch up with you. I want the free perk where we go out and get some cookies or something or like a brownie, whatever. You know, like let's do that perk. I remember when we did that in London. That was so fun. Remember we got the brownies in London? Oh, it's so great. I miss you so much. Well, listen, thanks again for being a guest on Let's Fix Work and everybody sit tight. We'll be right back right after the break. Hey, everybody, it's Lori Rudiman here. You know I'm all in on the Let's Fix Work podcast. I want to deprioritize corporate interests, amplify good ideas, and help people fix work by fixing themselves. But I need your help. Please head over to patreon.com forward slash let's fix work and contribute to the podcast's growth. I need your help in building an infrastructure, growing the community, and making Let's Fix Work a permanent place for good ideas. Your donation is essential for the show's success, and any contribution would mean the world to me. Thank you again so much for listening to Let's Fix Work, and thanks in advance for your support. Hey, friends. Hope you enjoyed my conversation with Alexandra Levitt. You can get all of her information in the show notes, but go ahead and connect with her online at humanityworksbook.com. And while you're at it, connect with me at L. Rudiman and Let's Fix Work. Let's Fix Work is a production of One Stone Creative. Audra Casino, Megan Doherty, and Gerson de la Flesh make the show sound great. Like what you hear? Please subscribe in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Pocket Cast, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please leave us a five-star review. Now that's all for this week's show. I hope you enjoyed it. We'll see you next time on Let's Fix Work. Make plans to attend the free financial wellness telesummit where HR pros will discover how to alleviate the negative effects of financial stress on employees and business. 
Learn how to develop benefits, address employee concerns, and how to recruit top talent. It's coming up October 16th through the 18th. And to register, go to pocketofmoney.com slash FW Summit.